welcome to Looking Space. I am Dr. Pamela, and um, today we are looking at historical, modern day, historical Black history makers. Um, in, and by the way, February is Black History Month. Um, I also like to call it Black Pride Month, Black Joy Month. Um, all things beautiful Black Month. <laughs> so welcome, welcome. And we are going to be looking at a couple of people or talking to a couple of people today who are our modern-day uh, Black history makers. Um, and, and also just looking at some of the wonderful people in our lives that we've had a privilege to witness living um living black history in the modern to modern day legend. So we're going to be looking at that as well. Um, on this show, I'm going to be joined by motivational speaker, empowerment coach, Keith L. Brown and filmmaker, Ryan Singh to engage in a compelling dialogue today around um, really everything that's happening, the good, the bad, the ugly, and what it is that we need to do and what we are doing to make a difference in this realm. So I am really excited about this show. Um, We've had a couple of really heavy shows over the last couple of weeks. So I am really looking forward to diving into some some black joy today um, and really learning about what what we're doing and what's happening and how we manage to just continue to thrive and push to overcome no matter what happens uh, in our lives. So in February, like I said, it's Black History Month, but we are going to keep this going all year long. We talk black <laughs> all year. So get engaged. Join us on the Facebook chat. We would love to hear your thoughts, your perspectives. We'd love to hear what you're doing. Um, and you can also um, listen. You can join that by going to the Sensation Station Network um, Facebook page where we are live and we're having this conversation. So join us. Um, get ready for a great show. And we'll be right back on the live exchange. Welcome back to the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, and today we are talking about Black history makers and we're really looking at modern day Black history makers and what is happening, what are we doing, how are we solving problems, how are we moving and shifting. And I want to introduce our first guest. Um, our first guest is motivational speaker and empowerment coach Keith L. Brown. Um, and he's an empowerment speaker who focuses on advocating for personal growth for individuals to be empowered, not devoured. Keith speaks about motivation, Zoom fatigue, education, mental health, parenting topics, and more. Mr. Quote, I'm possible. Keith L. Brown has made a world, has been named a world-class speaker and one of the top speakers and consultants in education by Insight Publishing and International Speakers Network. Mr. I'm Possible empowers hundreds of thousands of people annually, many of whom, of whom are in college, school systems, supplemental education agencies, and more. A life, a presidential lifetime achievement award winner, he created the I'm Possible Institute, where he coaches and trains speakers, authors, entrepreneurs, and those seeking to expand their influence both nationally and globally. Oh, there's so much more to say here, but I'm going to let Keith tell us himself. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Welcome, 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 Keith L. Brown. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning to all of your valuable viewers. To Dr. Pamela, the P stands for purposeful, the A stands for <laughs> ambitious, the M stands for majestic, the E stands for empowered, the L stands for leader, and the A stands for advocating. So I want to thank you Hello. for being an advocate <laughs> to and for the masses. And uh, listen, 
it is a beautiful day. And anytime I'm on top of the soil and the soil is not on top of me, it is a great day. I want to do this. You know, it is Black History Month and I want to send a heavenly shout out. You know, I come from a blended family, two mothers, two fathers, brothers and sisters on both sides. And uh, this week, unfortunately, my dad's passed away, Charles Jordan. And we want to send a heavenly shout out to him. And I want to dedicate all of my appearances this week uh, and for the remainder of the month, the life and legacy of my dad, Charles E. Jordan, who was definitely a uh, staple in black history as well. So send a heavenly shout out to him. And I'm just honored to be on the live exchange where it's all about humanity, intellect and change. I love it. Oh, your energy is amazing. Amazing. And yes, um, we are dedicating this show to Charles L. Gordon. Um, I, I appreciate you speaking his name and, and, and bringing his legacy and his memory to, to this conversation. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I love the first word in the theme, humanity, you mm. know, because we were all born human, but it takes effort to be humane. That's very important that we were all born human, but it takes effort to be humane. And so as a unifier, I'm unapologetically black. I have unapologetically vibes of black pride, black pride, 24 seven, 365. And I believe that the only way we can become totally unified is if we no longer have to apologize for the brilliant blackness. We no yeah. longer have to be ashamed for having black pride. We no longer have to hide our pride one month, you know, out of the 11 months out of the year and we celebrate it one month. So today I'm all about free-ish, you know? <laughs> you know, I love this show, Black-ish, you know, did some work with mixed-ish, all right? But I'm talking about free-ish and I'm talking about the liberating of the mind, the heart, the spirit, and the soul. So I'm unapologetically black. And I believe every day it's not impossible, it's impossible. So that's what I'm known as nationally and internationally, Mr. I'm Possible. Mr. I'm Possible. Okay, tell me what free-ish means to you. Well, free-ish honestly means that you have an epiphany, an awakening to be your authentic self, to be your authentic self, to be able to express what you are, who you are, and whose you are unapologetically. To be able to bring your creativity to the universe. I believe there are only two great days in your life when you were born and when you discover why you were born. And when you discover why you were born, that's on purpose. But along that journey, along that journey, you are giving glimpses of what you are, who you are. And it's all under whose you are. So, you know, one of the things I I believe in doing when I wake up in the morning and my feet hit the floor, the first thing I do is thank the creator for waking me up. And then I start clapping. I start clapping. And I encourage your viewers to start clapping. And people always say, well, Keith, why would we stop? Why would we start clapping when our feet hit the floor? And I say, you need to start clapping because it might be the only standing ovation you receive all day. I love it. Wake up giving ourselves a standing ovation because we are gifts to the planet. I want your viewers to understand free-ish simply means this, that you are present and your presence is a present in the present 
and that's what makes you a gift. Let me say that again. Your presence is a present in the present, and that's what makes you a gift. So we have to stop being here. Stop being here. We have to train our children and youth. We can no longer just be here because to be here is simply a physical state. So you might not be free because you're just here, but it doesn't mean that you're bringing any value to the planet. But when you are present, it means that you are ready to awaken and you are ready to represent the ancestors and you are ready to represent your heritage and you are ready to walk in your excellence and in your greatness and you are able to bring a gift to the planet every day so that's what i'm talking about when i say free-ish i'm talking about you bringing the best of yourself and don't apologize i'm often on national syndicated radio shows and they'll say do you see yourself as a uh, black speaker or just a speaker. And I say, you know what? I am a black speaker. I'm not a speaker who happens to be black. I'm a black speaker. And I want the world to see Dr. Pamela as black, okay? Because when they see you, when they see you as what you are, who you are and whose you are, you don't have to diminish anything. So that's very important. That's what the issue is all about. I love it. I love it. There are no apologies here. 100% black woman. <laughs> uh, but I appreciate that. I, I appreciate your, your thorough explanation of that. Um, we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, we're going to look at trending topics. Um, there's quite a few really interesting things that are trending right now uh, that, of course, I would love to get your take on um, Keith Brown. So stay with us, everybody. We'll be right back on the live exchange. I was muted. Um, all right, so trending. <laughs> we have um, in the state of Georgia. Um, you know, as we all know, there was like you know, voting was just so major here. It's major everywhere, but this year was such an important voting year for Georgia. And Stacey Abrams really took that initiative by the reins and ran with it. Um, and um, you know, and, and so she deserves all the honor for that. And um, so now I'm just really pleased uh, to to um, share that Stacey Abrams has been nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, U.S. voting rights activist and Democratic Party politician Stacey Abrams has been nominated for this year's Nobel Peace Prize for her work to promote nonviolent change via the ballot box. A Norwegian lawmaker said on Monday, quote, Abrams' efforts to complete King's work our um, work is crucial in the United States of America um, and it shall succeed in its effort to create fraternity between all of its people and happy and just society. Um, so that's that's a, a huge and amazing. And then the second thing is um, the uh, loss of Cicely Tyson. So last Thursday, um, we were, we, you know, we all got the news that Cicely Tyson um, had passed away. Um, and she is, you know, Cicely Tyson was a living legend for us. Um, she was 96 years old uh, when she passed away. And, um, you know, I, I take joy in the life that she lived. I'm grateful for all of her contributions um, to society, to the industry, to um, Black women, to Black men. I mean, it has just been um, a, a complete honor to watch her and to be able to witness her in her living years. And so two phenomenal women, um, history makers right here in his, uh, right here, you know, right before our eyes. Um, 
Keith, would love to hear your thoughts. Are you there? Are you there? Yes, my mic was muted. So okay. first of all, first of all, we definitely celebrate the life and legacy of mother, sister, committed creative Cecily Tyson. And my favorite role for her was a woman called Moses. And basically, it was about liberation. Everything she did was about liberation. And she did it in such a, a regal royal way, but she was unapologetically black. Uh, yes. There were there were many roles that she turned down that would have compromised her integrity, that would have compromised right. her heritage. And so she was always the one who taught us how to walk upright, how to walk in our black brilliance, how to walk in our black excellence unapologetically. So she lived the life of three-ish. And so yes. that's why we were hurt, you know, by that loss because it's a major loss. But once again, she was an example of a African-American woman in the fine arts who made, who made Hollywood depict her as a beautiful, black, brilliant woman of excellence. The roles that she took on, she understood it was very important because there would be other black girls that would be looking at her and they would yeah. grow up to be phenomenal black actresses like an Angela Bassett and others right. who so, definitely, yes. No, let me cut in because what you're saying fits right into one of the quotes that I wanted to share. And it's, uh, she says, I'm very selective as I've been my whole career about what I do. Unfortunately, I'm not the kind of person who works only for money. It has to be, it has to have some real substance for me to do it. Powerful. That's intention. She's working with intention. Yes. And, and, and I think, and not only that, she left us a blueprint, a yes. blueprint that when you are committed to your craft, when you are excellent at what you do, and when you won't compromise your values, your integrity, or you will not diminish your heritage, and your ancestral legacy that you will get the roles that you deserve. See, she understood that there were roles that were ordained just for her, but every role she took, every role she took, even roles when she was working with, with Richard Pryor, you know, and I don't even <laughs> remember just the name of the movie offhand, but when they had the school children on the bus, and it was just so amazing because it showed her working with special needs children. And right then, right there, as one who grew up in special ed, I'm a former special ed student, I like to say scholar, and so that was encouraging to me to see her in that role, loving on children, loving on children who are the underserved, the loving on children who might be, you know, tossed aside, cast out. So everything she did was to promote the excellence in our people and to show America what they're missing out on. So may she rest in the bosom of our Lord. And then when you talk about superfluous sister Stacey Abrams, I mean, listen. Yeah, I was just going to say, tell us about Stacey Abrams. <laughs> okay, I'm a director of external affairs in the Georgia Senate. And so I love Sister Stacey Abrams. She did this. She did this. She actually, and I'm not even going to use the term, lost the gubernatorial race here in the state of Georgia a few years ago. I'm going right. to go ahead and say that that race was stolen from her because we all know the data. So yeah. that race was stolen. She could have gone home. She could have just sat down and did nothing. But she right. showed the resilience of black brilliance. She showed the resilience of black excellence. She showed the resilience 
of a heritage that says when you knock us down, we're going to keep rising. Like Maya Angelou is still our rise. So what she did was she did not go home and sulk. She took her primary purpose, which is voter registration, which is overcoming voter suppression. And she worked with her team with Fair Fight, worked with her team to register hundreds of thousands of voters that made it possible for Mr. Joe Biden to become the president and um, Kamala Harris to become the vice president and Senator Warnock to become the first African-American senator from the state of Georgia, along with John Ossoff's victory. So Stacey Abrams was the catalyst. So whatever you do, they knock you down, be resilient. Right, you know, and and that that is powerful, and and I I just have to acknowledge, um, yes, that that the sequence of things and the way things happen were all um, ordained, you know. So she so she the, the election was stolen, but as you said, it led to other history making le- milestones that we needed. So I I agree with you wholeheartedly. We're gonna go to a break. Uh, when we come back, I want to dig into who you are, you know, this guy with all this energy who's making all this difference in the world. So stay with us and we'll be right back. <laughs> all right. Welcome back to the Live Exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela and um, I am joined by Elton Brown. He's a motivational speaker. He is impossible. Um, and, you know, you brought up Maya Angelou. And I would be remiss if I didn't, because it just applies so much to what's happening today. I have to read an excerpt of her poem. I have it memorized, but I'm going to read it. Just I'm going to memorize it and read it at the same time. Um, and I'll just do a little piece of it. But you may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may prod me in the very dark, but still like dust I rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells sleeping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides, just like hope springing high, still I rise. Do you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops weakened by my soulful cries? Does my haughtiness offend you? Do you take it uh, or uh, don't you take it off or hard because I walk like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard? You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise that I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs? Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I am a black ocean, leaping and wide, welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the hope and the dream of the slave. I rise. I rise. I rise. Woo! Oh my gosh. Every time 
And I was only going to read the first stanza, but I just, you know what? It was too much. You know, we can't not acknowledge the whole thing, but it was really, you write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may try me through the very dirt, but still like dust I rise. I was going to stop there because that's what's happened with the attempt to lie, the attempt to rewrite who we are, the attempt to take Black Lives Matter and say it's a terrorist organization. You know, all of these things. Whew. Go ahead. I know. I know. I, I want to hear your thoughts. Listen, <laughs> first of all, I want. First of all, I want to give you a G double O D J O B. Good job. Good job for the way you recited uh, Dr. Angelo's work. The late great Dr. Angelo. Listen, the beauty in that literary masterpiece, "Still I Rise," is the fact that she asks questions. Yes. But she doesn't wait for the answers. She <laughs> asks the question and then she continues to do the work. She asks the questions and then she continues to be great, freeish. So she goes from she goes from asking questions that would ask America and the world, why are you attempting to make us impossible? And yeah. then she gives the answers that say, I'm possible. And that's what I do every day. I take individuals from impossible to I'm possible. And that's very important that you can ask America the question, why won't you accept me? But don't wait for America to answer. That's the right. key. You have to continue to do the work. You have to continue to walk in your excellence and your brilliance. So there's nothing wrong with asking the question. But as Dr. Angelo would say, don't wait for the answer, because historically we've seen what the answer is. What you got to keep doing is promoting the gift that lies on the inside. So as I've been speaking nationally and globally, on these virtual platforms, since we now have virtual learning in many of the school districts across the world that I serve, it is yeah. my goal when I'm on these virtual platforms and I, I come on to music to get the, the children and the young people engaged. And then I ask them to put in the chat, how are you lit? How are you lit? And they love the term lit, right? And so <laughs> I explain to them lit stands for leaders in training. So okay. how are you lit? What do you do every day to be lit? And they're all writing in the chat. And I encourage our educators across the country and shout out to all of our educators who are doing a great job. My yeah. wife is an elementary school principal and I see how she inspires her teachers and her leaders and those pupils and parents every day virtually. And so let me say this to all of our teachers and paraprofessionals and anyone in the education market in general, shout out to Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, a pioneer. Hello. All right, yes. founder of Bethune Cookman College, now University. Shout out to a Marva Collins, Westside Preparatory School there in Chicago, and all of these leaders in education. Dr. Cole, Janetta Cole, former yes. president of Sterling College. So listen, all of those educators out there, what they're doing on the virtual platform right now is outstanding. So let me encourage them to begin every day, not with academics, but with social emotional learning. We have to tap into the emotional side of our children and young people. We have to check on their mental health, their mental well-being so that they can rise because the children and young people have a lot of questions as well. See, I don't just want to, when I go on, I don't just teach them that black lives matter. I teach them that black lives are matter. See, America has yet yeah, to acknowledge black lives. Listen, right? <laughs> America has yet to acknowledge and probably won't that Black lives matter. But this is the key. Black lives are matter. That means we are breathing beings. We are living yep. beings. We are thinkers. We have feelings. We have emotions. So the reason that that 
a corrupt uh, officer could have his knee on the neck of George Floyd for eight minutes and 46 seconds as the life literally literally left George Floyd's body is because he didn't feel any matter under his knee. He didn't feel an individual under his knee. And so it was nothing for him to kill and to slaughter on that fateful day in Minnesota. So what we must understand is that and the, 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 the tragedy is not just the death, but the tragedy is that he looked in the camera the entire time while he was doing it that showed a basic, a basic uh, just lack of humanity. And that's just how it is in America a lot of time with African, African Americans. Because you know, Dr. Pamela, on January the 6th, and I'm teaching this on virtual platforms, I'm teaching our black and brown babies and our white scholars as well, to be critical thinkers, because if I don't teach the white children in youth, then guess what? I'm diminishing their humanity. I'm diminishing their humanity as well, because then they don't even know that black lives matter and black lives are matter. And so this is what I teach them right there on January the 6th, when we had these thugs as President Biden said, and these insurgents, and that's that vocabulary word for them, those insurgents, and they literally raided the Capitol. What yes. would what have what would have happened if those were Black Lives Matters protesters? There would have yeah. been a mass bloodshed. There would have been a mass bloodshed. And I say this: if America won't even protect members of Congress, what makes you think? that America is going to protect Dr. Purposeful Pamela or Valuable Versus or Keith L. Brown, Mr. I'm Possible. So what we have to put in our mindset is we have to teach our children and youth the truth. And the truth of the matter is that that was a plot and a ploy that I just believe was pre-planned. I believe it was allowed by certain officials. And I know that in order to bring healing, we're going to have to get to the bottom of that because that's going to go down in history as one of the worst days in American history. And that leads me to this, my book, right? It's oh. called The book is called Talk is Expensive. What have we heard all of our lives? Talk is cheap. Talk. No, talk is not cheap. Go, yeah, so, go ahead. Yeah, let, me, let me jump in real quick because I, I, I want to say, because I, I mean, I, I don't want to leave this important point that you made about the worst day in history. And what's interesting to me is that 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 would be the worst day in history and not Black Wall Street being destroyed. Right. You know, all the people that died. Um, that would be the worst day in history and not, uh, you know, some of the other terrible things that had happened in the Black community to slaves and so forth. Um, but, but sadly, that is going to be listed as one of the saddest days in American history because mm-hmm. it, it wasn't us. And the other thing is we have been telling the nation and the world for centuries that these groups are dangerous. Not that they're just dangerous for us, but they're dangerous in general. They're dangerous to humanity. And so now finally, because it didn't happen to us and because we weren't involved necessarily in this thing, now it's abundantly clear, oh, they're dangerous. <laughs> and, you know, and it just blows my mind that it took that for people to finally realize what we have been saying for centuries, that, that this, this is not when you're dealing with inhumane people who are attacking one group of people, everybody's in danger. Everybody's in danger. So absolutely. 
Yeah, I, I, so I definitely want to get to your book. I, I definitely didn't mean to cut that part off because I want to know more about it, but I, I just had to just emphasize that, that point you were making because it was so incredibly important. So um, so I'm not sure. Are we, let me just be clear from the production standpoint. Are we going to break or are we just going straight into the research? Should we go to a break first? We, we can go to research. The research. Okay. I think she said the research. So we're going to go ahead and go into the research, which is connected to what you were saying. Um, it, and so in the research, it shows that um, a lot of the, the basically teaching black history has been a fail in this country. Um, we, we haven't done a great job <laughs> in, in, in the mainstream of education of teaching black history. There's been a push for the 1619 project, which um, gives a different depiction of U.S. history that integrates the the realities of slavery, the realities of Jim Crow, the progression to you know from where we were to where we are now, um, from an oppressive standpoint, um, and that part of the history has been missing. And so, um, Garrett King, an African American history education expert and director at the Center Carter Center for K twelve Black History Education at the University of Missouri, told the Insider about um, a different, a few different ways that educators can work to fix that. Um, so existing curriculums lack Black perspectives and sanitized versions of Black history. Um, the key there is that they, it lacks Black perspectives. Our history is not written by Black people. Um, and as we know, the, our history consists of a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different experiences. I think in a best case scenario, history book has the perspective of Black people, of Native Americans, of Japanese, of Mexican Americans, not just the European perspective, um, not just the story that all of us told from the European perspective, because there is a filter there that leaves out a whole lot of stuff and that, that uh, paints a picture that's not quite so realistic. So so that's the research um, that I wanted to share and, um, and offer any opportunity if you have a perspective. We have 30 seconds before we go to break, but I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I, I have a lot of thoughts on that and okay. I can definitely share when we come back from break. When we come back. Because, okay, let's yeah, do that. Yes, yes, because what you're saying is what you said was so relevant and I definitely don't want to just uh, gloss over it. So I definitely okay. want to dive right into that when we come back. Okay, sounds good. I think he just took a break. <laughs> Hey, welcome back to the Lab Exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, and I am joined by Keith L. Brown, and we are talking about, you know, all things Black history, really. And right before the break, I shared some research and just some perspectives on uh, teaching Black history and, and how we go about teaching Black history in this country. And so Keith says that he has some, some thoughts. I would love to hear your, your perspective on that. You're so muted. very much. One of the things <laughs> that we must understand when we are teaching black history. And the beauty of what I'm doing now is I'm going into a lot of predominantly white school district districts, um, coaching and training white administrators and white educators on the importance of a paradigm shift in teaching black history. So whether I'm in Idaho or Wisconsin or even Sheffield, England, okay, mm -hmm. with some of my clients, wherever I am, it's an honor to be able to let them know, first of all, when you teach black history from a standpoint of slavery, when that is the foundation 
of Black History Month, you are just validating the oppression that our people went through. And I don't want to even say the slaves. I want to say the enslaved, okay? The enslaved, yeah. because that, that speaks to them being forced. You know, when we say, oh, the slaves, it's almost like, like you know, that was a badge of honor that they wore. No, they were in, let's make it clear, they weren't slaves, just slaves. They were enslaved. And so when we yeah. start with a foundation of slavery, then what we're doing is, like I said, those school districts, those predominantly white school districts that have black and brown children and youth, I let them know you're validating the bondage. You're validating the bondage because what you forgot is the discussion, the research, the discussion on those geniuses. You want to talk about STEM programs? Well, let's talk about those black scientists in Africa. Let's talk about those black engineers, those black mathematicians who built pyramids in, on the African continent, that's where you should start black history from, not from a framework of America, but from a global perspective when black and brown people were creating and were creative and were innovators. So that's where we need to start black history and failure to do so once again only promotes the bondage and that can be traumatic to the minds of children and young people that's that that's trauma when they when you start off with showing their people in bondage and in chains as if this is who right. we are and then we worked our way up to jim crow are you kidding me and then we worked right. our way up to sharecropping and and the civil and the lynchings we worked our way up no 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 so we have to start from a foundation of black brilliance and black excellence. We have to have that paradigm shift. And those black and brown babies deserve that because the white and Asian children and youth that I empower on a daily basis, they come from a foundation. Their history comes from a foundation of brilliance and excellence yeah. and unfortunately dominance that is rarely talked about. And so I just believe that the research you read is absolutely correct. We need more, listen, we need more black perspectives, but we need we need black perspectives that have the best interest of telling the authentic truth. There you go. In all other words, all black yeah. perspectives don't, right. don't we, right. there you go. We don't just need we don't just need black folk who have a perspective because black folk who have a perspective might not necessarily have the perspective that is going to benefit and elevate our children, youth, families, and our communities. So let me be clear. When we have those black voices, those black voices need to be black voices that are advocating for the truth, that are advocating for talking about Black Wall Street before there was Wall Street. There was Black Wall Street. And talk about black entrepreneurs and the, the, the black economic impact impact okay that african americans had on america from the beginning talk about the madam cj walkers okay talk about those individuals that helped to build america talk about those individuals talk about yeah. the garrett Morgans. all right because when they were in the capital the other day it's interesting when i was talking to a group of children and youth i said listen did you see that members of congress had on the gas masks in the capital the other day they were like yes mr impossible i said well you know that the gas mask was invented by garrett morgan so what did i do i made it relevant 
See, yeah. I made it relevant. You have to make it relevant to them. I made it relevant to them. I let them know, listen, Paul Robeson was the first uh, one in hip hop and, and Langston Hughes and others, okay? So before you had a Jay-Z or 50 Cent, you know, before you had these individuals and these the modern day rappers, man, you had Langston Hughes who was breaking down the signifying monkey. And when I start rapping for them and they love that and they start loving that, but that's what we have to do. We have to teach the truth and we can't teach it with a watered down curriculum. And too often in the white school districts that I serve, that's what they have, a watered down curriculum. So I'm honored to be able to bring truth to those yeah. school, those predominantly white school districts that also serve black and brown babies. But the research is clear. We definitely need more authentic black perspectives to teach about black history. Look, there, this whole history thing is so uh, politicized. And you no, and of course, these things you don't know necessarily growing up. You don't know all the politics behind it, but it's so politicized that, you know, even in the state of Texas, they have rewritten textbooks to the point where they've taken out certain facts and truths, um, be, you know, to for, to push the agenda. And, you know, and so we don't really think about how much politics plays into every fabric of our society, including the way that we teach first, second and third graders. Uh, it is it is. Yes. Absolutely stunning. It yeah. is the only word I can but, but Dr. Pamela, that all goes back to what we saw in this last election, that black and brown people have to continue to get out and vote in droves. Get out and vote in droves because the only reason those textbooks can be rewritten, the only reason information can be omitted is by those individuals who have been elected into office, those individuals who create policies. Right. They create policies. And so that's why it was very important for Betsy DeVos, okay, the Secretary of Education under uh, Mr. Trump. That was, that's why it was very important for her to, to leave office and to leave office expeditiously, to, okay? To leave office expeditiously, because here was a lady who said that HBCUs was the were the first example of school choice. Historically, yeah, black yeah. colleges and universities, oh, yeah. the first examples of school choice. No, they weren't the first examples of school choice. We didn't have any other choice. We didn't have yeah. any other choice. Okay, and so it and is so. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's it's just that that it's not Nancy or Betsy DeVos. DeVos, you know. It, her being in that position is a prime example of, yes, we need to vote and we need to, to take positions like that. And yes. we need history book writers and, you know, we need to be in, in, in uh, the, the positions that will that implement these kinds of things. And so I love the fact that that Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. Um, and Vice President Kamala Harris have committed to making co uh, the, the the government look like us, look like Absolutely. the United States. In, I don't know if people understand how important that is, just that move alone, how important that is, because what that means is, and I, and, and I don't think Joe Biden did this by accident, but I think he understood that bringing in the first black woman, black Asian woman vice president to office, that's going to let him go down in history. And and look, Absolutely. I don't even care if there were ulterior motives like that as well, saying, look, I'm going to be the man that brought, that's fine. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you saying that I'm going to make sure that there are black people in the communications department, in the transportation department, in the, you know, that there are 
there, there, there's uh, Native Americans, that there are people who are disabled, that there are people from the LGBT community. Yes. Who is going to shift the trajectory of history just by putting people in certain places? Huge. I love it. I, no, it, it's very huge. And not only that, it goes back to the optics goes back to the optics. Many of us are visual learners. And so black and brown children and youth need to see individuals in power that look like them. The optics are real. The visuals are real. And so what President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have done, they have set a foundation for America now to be on the path that she should have been on many years ago. So I'm very encouraged and I'm very encouraged and empowered by those selections thus far. And listen, I'm going to continue to be an advocate for change and an advocate for going from impossible to impossible because that's very important. Yes. So so when we come back, I want to hear more about this book. Uh, you say, people say talk is cheap. You say, no, it's not. I want to hear more about that. So stay Absolutely. with us, everyone. <laughs> we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the live exchange. I am Dr. Jamila and I'm joined by Keith L. Brown, also known as I am possible. Um, talk to me about this about this book and your philosophy around talk being cheap versus not cheap. Oh, yes. The name of the book is Talk is Expensive, Communicating Effectively to Expand Your Impact, Your Influence, and Your Income. And it was born out of the Impossible Institute where I coach and train entrepreneurs, emerging speakers, educational leaders, and communicators and uh, thought leaders overall. There has been a misconception that talk is cheap. We've heard it all of our lives. And so I created talk is expensive. And I'm going to give you a profound example. Go back to January 6th, the morning of January 6th. There were a couple of individuals who stood at a podium and stated, we have to go fight and we have to go fight like hell. And, And that led to what we saw with the Capitol the overrunning and overtaking of the capital. See, we often say actions speak louder than words, but remember, it's the words that move people to action. Yes, actions speak louder than words, but it's the words that move people to action. So that's why I said talk is expensive because it was expensive. Before before the violence that was inflicted upon so many in Tulsa, Oklahoma with Black Wall Street, There were angry white mobs that got together and plotted and talked about what they were going to do. And the results were expensive. And when we now have an opportunity to elevate, educate and empower our black and brown children and youth, and we fail to do so through our talk, then it's going to be expensive because it's going to minimize their actions presently and in the future. And so that's why I said talk is not cheap. Talk is expensive. You know that with the live exchange, when you come on and you talk to your viewers and you bring on guests who are talking to your viewers, guess what? The impact and the influence is profound because their talk will hopefully move your viewers to action actions. So we don't need to water down or minimize the power of talk. Talk is not cheap. Talk is definitely expensive. And I'm going to say this. It is so expensive. People often ask me, what what is your number one fear as a professional speaker who travels around the globe now on a virtual level for the for the most part? I said my number one fear, okay, is that those who I speak to will believe me. 
<laughs> they will believe me. And if I am putting down or putting out the wrong information, I'm going to be held accountable. So I had be put. I had better speak truth to power. I had better put yeah. out information that's going to affect their lives and not infect their lives because the effect is profound. And so that's as a messenger. And you're a messenger as well. We have to continuously make certain that we are empowering people and we're speaking truth to power. We're unapologetic about it. But guess what? We are taking people from impossible to impossible. So don't ever say talk is cheap. Yeah. Talk is not cheap. Talk is definitely expensive. That is that is powerful. Um, and we have witnessed that, as you said, over the you know, the last four years, over the decades, uh, the Black Wall Street was one of 90 massacres yes. that happened in thriving Black communities. That was yes. started to talk. So, yeah, powerful. Now, I we are going to wrap up this hour, but I want to give you a chance to let everybody know how they can get in touch with you, what they might want to uh, connect with you about. Um, so I'll give the floor to you. Absolutely. First of all, I want to thank you for uh, inviting me to your significant show, um, the live exchange. It has been all the way live and I've loved the exchange, but you can find me on Instagram. All of your viewers, go ahead and follow me on Instagram at Keith L. Brown underscore Instagram, Keith L. Brown underscore. I'm on Twitter at Keith L. Brown 1911. Shout out to Omega Sapphire. Keith L. Brown 1911 on Instagram. Keith L. Brown, Mr. I'm Possible on Facebook and then KeithLBrown.com. And if you want to book me at your college or university, your school district, uh, your government agency, if you just want to book me to come in and inspire and empower, go ahead and shoot an email. Uh, go to KeithLBrown.com, shoot an email or my illustrious publicist, Adrian Alexander Allen. And you can email her at Adrian, A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E, Adrian at the IPYagency.com, Adrian at the IPYagency.com. And I'm speaking all over the world. And I have to give a shout out to Miss Michaela Green, graduate of Albany State University, one of my awesome team members, and my son, Keon J. Brown, who also works in the Georgia Senate, uh, honors graduate of the Savannah State University. So I believe in employing millennials as well. That's another example of black brilliance, making certain that we saw into the lives of our young adults as well. And so with that being said, I want all of your viewers to go from impossible to I'm possible every day. Bring a new gift to the planet. Don't apologize for it, but definitely, definitely, I would love to come to your school, your agency, your college, your university. And shout out to Sheffield Hallam University in England, the Dutch Caribbean, Barbados, all of my clients. And guess what? Shout out to Alcorn State University. I'm coming to see y'all soon. Alcorn State University. I'm coming to see y'all soon. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, it, this conversation continues on the Facebook page. So if you want to join us, if you have more shout outs, Keith, throw those on the Facebook page. Yes. <laughs> We'd love to continue that, to engage with you. Um, and thank you all. We're going to continue this conversation. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome to the second half of the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, where we talk humanity, intellect, and change. And today we are talking about 
modern day black history makers. And we were just graced with the presence of Keith L. Brown, who is a motivational speaker, coach, um, empowerment speaker. Um, and so it was, it was quite an honor to have his energy uh, and his insight. And, um, you know, and we, you know, we went through just some of the, the most important elements of um, what it means to be black and celebrate black history and, and live a purposeful life um, as a black person. <laughs> um, so that has been really awesome. And I'm looking forward to this hour. In this hour, um, we're going to be talking to um, an artist. I love art. I love artists. Uh, but it's, it's uh, from the standpoint of um, acting and filmmaking. Um, so we're going to have um, that will be our second hour. So, I, you know, I'll go ahead and um, and introduce him. Um, he is an award-winning Indigenous and People of Color member um, Guyanese-born Canadian filmmaker uh, Ryan Singh, um, award-winning, and um, so I've been really honored to have two award-winning guests on the show today. Um, so I am uh, going ahead and bring uh, Ryan on. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. Hi, good afternoon. It's so it's good to have you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Tell me a little bit about. I'm hearing it. But tell me a little bit about who you are and how you got into. Uh, well, I think I was born into the arts. My father is a writer, and so. Um, he brought me on stage when I was about six years old and I got the bug. Um, I lived in Guyana, so um, all we had was older movies that would come into that marketplace and I would go to the movie theater and watch Indian movies and Chinese movies, the kind of stuff that we were that were made available to us back then. And so being on stage uh, at such an early age, when I came to Canada at about 16, I wanted to get into the movies and didn't know how to. And so I studied film and television at school. And once I graduated, I started to, to do community theater and then worked myself into learning about the film business and got myself back into filmmaking and acting and doing a lot of hundreds and hundreds of background work. But my true calling is acting and producing and directing. And so that's what I kept coming back to. Oh, oh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, 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 gotta listen. You gotta listen. keeps drawing. I love that. Um, um, we're gonna we're go to a, to a break. break. Um, we have to grab a little bit more to you know who you are, but I'm trying to get your take on black history and how you're a modern black history maker. Stay with us. We'll be right here. All right, thank you. Welcome back to the Let's Shake. I'm Dr. Pamela, and we're talking about black history makers, modern day, um, and uh, joined by um, actor filmmaker Ryan Singh. Um, Ryan, uh, <laughs> um, so tell me about the you know what you're doing nowadays that makes your work important to the black community. Yes, uh, what I'm doing is I'm creating work from a black voice, uh, utilizing the skill set of uh, black creatives to be able to make sure that 
the work we create and, and showcase represents our community, comes from our voices, and that going forward, we can play in the bigger uh, arenas as well, lending our voices to other creatives that are not, that are absent. I think that's so important. And one of the, the um, people that we talked about in the first hour was Cicely Tyson and how the work of Cicely Tyson was very intentional. You know, she said that she chooses her her roles intentionally. And, and I, I read this quote at the beginning, but she says, I'm very selective as I've been my whole career about what I do. Unfortunately, I'm not the kind of person who only works for money. It has to have some real substance for me to do it. Um, and I'm just wondering um, how roles like her roles or take, you know, perspectives like hers um, shape your approach to the work you do in film. I worked in a project called the Black Experience Project. I did a number of photography as well as documentaries for that project. It was a research study looking at the Black experience of uh, Black individuals in the greater Toronto area. And uh, following the project, uh, I was promised by the organization that I could take that footage that I'm working with and create a longer form uh, documentary and exploit it for the resources that I, the payments that I probably didn't get as a result of it being a low budget project. At the end of the project, they reneged on that promise. And because of the integrity that I have, I wanted to make sure that for the copyright reasons and for the fact that if we always get uh, our proprietary uh, things taken away from us, we never have anything to have and hold. And so I walked away from the money that they st still had outstanding. Uh, it was grievous, but it was also important that we keep ownership of the things that we create. And that was a story that I created with the organization. Uh, and it was important that I remained a part owner of it. Uh, oftentimes we see ourselves uh, losing you know, even look at the continent of Africa, the people come and take resources and, and take ownership of things and, and we're left without and sold things that come from our earth, comes from beneath our feet. We sold it back. So I can't hear you. Oh, uh, it's so true. It's that battle between do I fight for this thing or do I just lay it down and move forward? You know, and that seems to be the decision that we've had to make in so many different scenarios through history. Um, so so that that's powerful. Um, just to get some some clarifying points. Are you so you you were born or raised in part in Guyana and then you moved to Canada. Um, what part of Canada are you in now? I moved here when I was uh, 16 years old and I have been here for 17 years. And the city, what city is that? Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. You can call it Hollywood North. Hollywood North. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. I, you know, and I have to, I, I flew there. I did lay over there, but I did not get to experience Toronto. I flew into Ottawa. And, um, and and spent my time there. Um, but I'm curious to know, one of the things that I felt when I was in Canada, for some reason it felt different. And, um, you know, and, and even some of the conversations I had with people there, you know, the, the point, the perspective was, I don't know how you're 
living in the United States right now. <laughs> I don't I don't know how you're doing it. And I'm so I'm so proud of Canada and I love Canada. And here are some of the policies that Canada has that I could never live in the United States because the United States doesn't do that. So I'm curious to know from your lens um, what the black experience is looking like in the United States in in comparison to Canada. Do you see it as different or similar? We have uh, similar challenges here for sure. Um, uh, one of those things is that uh, we don't have all the freedoms that everyone thinks that we have. Uh, it's still a struggle for us to enter into the industries. It's still a struggle for us to participate in, in major organizations. So, for example, when, when the fiasco of George Floyd happened in the United States, it was a wake-up call for Canadians as well. And so even uh, our, our major funding industry, uh, Telefilm Canada, had to say, look, we have to create opportunities for black and diverse people uh, because uh, we haven't been doing a good job. Uh, the, the Canadian Media Fund that funds that uh, for television projects went ahead and started saying, we have to do more to facilitate these voices and all organizations are doing the same. That's good to hear that we have some of you know some of the same kinds of initiatives that are that are being mobilized in Canada as we're seeing here. Um, very interesting. So we're we're going to take a, another break, and I'm um, I've got a couple of more um, questions kind of along the same lines for you. But um, so so stay with us. We'll be right back on the live exchange. Welcome back to the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela, and I am joined by uh, filmmaker Ryan Singh. Am I saying it correctly, Ryan? Ryan Singh. Perfect. Okay, perfect. <laughs> I, I just watched my wonder. Um, so curious to know about you know. So I you know I was going to major in film. Um, I, I I hit a crossroads. It was like, do the masters in film or do the masters in education? And I chose education because I figured you know what I can always dive into film and I might not need a degree to do it. I might I just need a skill set. That was kind of my thought. Um, and I, so because of that, I've kind of followed black film progression, you know, so we have different portrayals that we have over time. I remember, um, you know, my earliest, I guess, memories are maybe more like the seventies, which I watched later because I was a baby in the seventies, um, of the, what they call black exploitation films. And then the eighties, we had, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, we had all the gangster rap films. Um, we had the hood films, the boys in the hood, all of those films. And then as we got into the 90s, we got the romantic comedy films and the dramatic films like Waiting to Exhale and, and all of that. Um, so I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, because now what I'm seeing are kind of the um, uh, Jordan Peele Let's let's show the experience of black people, but in a Twilight Zone kind of way, which is so fascinating. Where do you see black film going nowadays? Uh, well, uh, storytelling is evolving all the time, and there are multiple audiences that we can cater to. And one of the things that you know, you're an educator, so it's so important for you to lend your voice in the filmmaking field. You can certainly write programs towards children, uh, children learning, for example. Uh, you already know the psychology from the, your studies and, and preparation. And you also know how to create uh, lectures and storytellings for kids at an earlier age. Absolutely, you can become a children's storyteller and create 
content. And there's a huge market and also a huge void of black voices in that uh, arena. I certainly think that uh, the evolution of the, the, the film market is that we have an unexplored and untapped resources of story, stories that we have to share. And we can't wait for someone else to give us permission to share it. We have the technology and we have the opportunity right now to be able to go out there, create these stories and tell them, and then find a marketplace that we have, again, an unregulated uh, resource still uh, in terms of the internet to be able to share the, uh, these stories through the platforms. I love that. Because now we have direct access to a market. Uh, for distribution. Um, I've, I've seen the way that Netflix and Hulu has opened opportunities for independent filmmakers to, you know, have a platform, um, which is huge. I mean, it just seems that the market has evolved in such a way that that is giving us a voice um, like never before. Um, you know, so I, I find that just, just do, you, do you see that people are taking advantage of this, at, you know, in a good way, that they're utilizing this resource? Um, you know, is it a an easy way to get in. I don't know that easy is the right word to use, but <laughs> is it accessible, you know, as uh, for people of color? There is a lot more accessibility for sure. Um, I've worked with a number of people who now have content on Netflix, for example, and other channels, and it's really incredible. Um, but we're still we're still waiting for access. We're still hoping for access because, again. Those are the tier A opportunities, especially when you get the funding. And we see that the funding is not always equitable. What the new opportunities are is that we have an opportunity to really create equitable opportunities, not necessarily equal, but equitable. Here is for the work that you have and the experience that you have, some resources to build the content that you're building. And we've seen Netflix gone into Africa and perhaps soon the Caribbean to find stories that they can, uh, again, purchase and made, make available for the audiences that they're tapping into through their subscription programs. Yeah, I... I, I I'm grateful for, you know, the way that the market is going, but you're right, there still remains that question of, you know, um, you know, of... of equitable funding and um, access and so forth. Um, one of the things that I noticed as I was looking at your IDMB um, file uh, was that one of the films that you did was with Angelina Jolie, uh, which I thought, whoa, Angelina. <laughs> um, was that, and I think you were maybe doing camera work. Would you mind just tell me about that experience a little bit? Um, yes, that was a really wonderful experience. Um, I was doing behind the scenes. It's again, it's an animated film. So I did all of the capturing of the voice recording when they were doing auditions. And from the auditions, they took the audio that we captured uh, of the auditioners and made a demo reel, a sizzle reel. And that's what they used to get Angelina to commit to the project because she saw the potential of the filmmakers and storytellers and she said yeah i'll come aboard and from that there was endorsement and more opportunities to find the funding that they needed to be able to complete the film and so with that we were able to con continue and i again i was brought on to capture the principal um, audio recordings uh, and again that was used as part of the epk and so 
I don't know how far my work has reached, but I'm sure that many people in Hollywood is already experiencing the work that I've done. Um, I'll bet the behind the scenes and the interview um, work, but they don't know that I exist yet. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. I mean, look, it, it is all a stepping stone to to something newer and greater. So I, I think that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, my son is a film major, and one of the things that he's interested, in, like he he has his his role models, and his number one role model is, um, oh gosh, I'm gonna mess it up, um, but you might be able to help me out here. Um, he is the one who does Kill Bill. Um, uh, Oh gosh. gosh. Quentin Tarantino. Quentin, Quentin Tarantino. I thought you'd be able to help me out with that. <laughs> um, and, and what I love though is that filmmakers, producers, they have their own, you know, many of them have their own unique style. You know, just by turning the film on who it is. We know when we turn on a Spike Lee film. Nowadays, we know when we turn on a Jordan Peele film. We know when we turn on a Quentin Tarantino film. I'm curious to know who. Who are those people that inspire you? What's the style of film that inspires you the most? I, I love a lot of different genres of films. Uh, so you would find me working in, in comedy or working in sci-fi, working in many different genres. And it's really beautiful to be able to have sort of an, an adaptive uh, mechanism like myself because, and so, so, but, the genre of films that really, really excite me is romantic film. I'm a hopeless romantic. So that's why Bollywood films was, was something that I really, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, was attracted to. And even now, like I, I watched a whole season of uh, that, that new Netflix show where there's a black prince. And I watched the whole Bridgerton. season in one sitting. Bridgerton. <laughs> I was going to ask you a Bridgerton question. So. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm excited about those kind of things because love is, love is what moves us all. And so when you talk about your son and his passion, it's he has to develop a relationship with his voice, making sure that the kind of stories that he wants to tell is the kind of stories that he's committed to. And he will die by the sword telling those stories. And so he has to become the best at what he does. If if his story is on garbage, he has to be the best garbage storyteller, all right? And then be committed to making sure that other people buy the level of storytelling that he wants to tell. That is, that is such great um, advice because, you know, he has his own very unique voice. And I think that's what adds to the industry is not being the same thing we see all the time. Um, Bridgerton is one of the masterpieces of Shonda Rhimes. Now, this is after a novel, but Shonda Rhimes made sure she put her own little spin in it. And we know that everything that Shonda Rhimes makes has hot, steamy, romantic scenes. No matter if you're in a hospital or if you are, no matter where you are, if Shonda Rhimes wrote it, there's going to be hot, steamy, romantic scenes. <laughs> so, so, you know, what is your staple? What is your focus? So I, I love that. But I do have some... Uh, questions for you. Now that I know that you're a hopeful, hopeless romantic, uh, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna have to dive into that too. So, <laughs> so everybody, we're gonna continue this conversation on the other side of this uh, commercial break. Stay with us. We'll be right back. All right. So, um, before we dive into your um, romantic side. <laughs> 
<laughs> By the way, everyone, thanks for joining us. This is Dr. Campbell on the live stream. And we are talking about Black history makers, modern day Black history makers. And I'm joined by a filmmaker, producer, film guru, actor, Ryan Singh. And, um, and I want to just give a little bit of research. And this will actually help lay some context to some of the questions that I want to ask. Um, but the basically what this is, is just a... Um, uh, a commentary in perspective um, and it's um, and I actually unfortunately I have to post the the, the author of this um, on you know um, I'll have to post it because I don't have the actual name sitting here in front of me um, but basically the idea is that it's the challenge of forgetting and it's the idea that we have um, nations hold and dear the history that they want to remember so we have things that are, um, you know, that mark our society in different ways. We have statues we want to keep. In fact, one of the statues that's going up here in Georgia um, will will be, um, oh gosh, I, I, I can't even remember. I'm sorry. I'm not going to even go there because I can't remember right now. But, but we basically have, you know, things that we want to remember, things that we want to use as monuments. Um, you know, what do we put in our museums? What do we celebrate? Um, and you know, how do we depict the stories of our history? Um, and so there are, uh, for example, monuments to the Vikings as a symbol of freedom and the spirit exploration um, in Scandinavia. In Germany, during the 1930s and 40s, the Nazis celebrated their supposed Aryan supremacy um, through monument and songs. Um, and while America traditionally revels in either the Civil War battles or founding fathers, um, you know, we are actually in the process of saying, is this really what we want to celebrate? So there's, the, you know, a lot of movements to, um, you know, to kind of take those things down. Um, so what, you know, our history is evident of the things that are important to us and how we tell our history um, is important. And so what I think is interesting is so I'm going to tie this in. I'm going to tie this in a bit to um, to Bridgerton, which is a Netflix series um, that really kind of depicts, depicts a diverse society. Um, and I would guess this is maybe the 1700s, um, 1600s. I'm not sure the time period, but it's way back in time uh, where it was, you know, you, you refer to people as your grace and um, my lord. And it was just, you know, it's a really awesome time. And the depiction is so fascinating because it is diverse because the Duke of Hastings is a black man um, because the, you know, uh, and I'm going to mess up if I try to say everybody's name, but uh, his auntie who, you know, she's a black woman. The queen is a black woman. And, and, and there's just a lot of um, storytelling of their roots that are just human in nature. It's not necessarily about their race, although there is a, um, an underlying theme that that where they refer every now and then to how the prince, uh, the king, the king, a white man married the queen, a black woman, and how that integrated their society. I find that extremely fascinating. Um, and so connecting this to how we tell our history, um, I find it interesting that this might inspire us to rewrite history a bit. History has been written to, to depict one race and, you know, 
But this might inspire us to take a different look at history because of course there were black people around in those times. Um, and, and, and we can fictionalize it and we can also make it nonfiction. But I just, I, I find it inspiring that Shonda Rhimes would take a, uh, a story like this and integrate so many different perspectives in it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Ryan. Uh, can you hear me well? Okay, excellent. So what 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 you you're delving into a lot of uh, uh, things in, in your question here, and one of the biggest things is I like to think uh, Bridgerton is set in 2106 thereabouts uh, because of Megan uh, and, and the fact that she's married to the prince and now she's grown older and that's. That's the life that we'll have. Her, her, her successors are now the royalties. Um, stories are really a finite thing. Uh, we're still writing stories from the Greeks. And so all stories are formed in the same way. And the way that we structure our narratives is the way that people will accept how our story is. And so if we're constantly looking at ourselves as uh, gangbangers or hoes and, and those sort of language that we use to represent ourselves, then within that community or culture, that's the kind of story that's going to come out of it. But out of that can still be the beautiful, successful succession stories. And so we have to be the curators of how we're going to set our legacy. You know, when we think of the recent political situation, political strife in America, we saw, for example, on one side, everyone is very scathing about Donald Trump and his, his uh, approach to the American presidency. On the other side, you would think that this man is the most gifted uh, thing for America. But again, it's all the way in the way we, we pose and pro, um, create the prose around the narrative that we want the audience to receive. And so that's our opportunity is to create the narratives. And as a, again, as an educator, you have that opportunity when you're working with kids and, and, and the kids have an opportunity when they're writing their short stories to really write their royal stories as they see, see it or their successful stories and their succession stories. And that's within us and the power within us to learn and to reteach those uh, skill sets. Ooh, the power, the royal story. I absolutely love that so much. Um, and, and I have to clarify that I, I work with adults because I don't have the patience and I'm not blessed with the level of patience that some educators have with kids. Um, but I, so I, I, I teach um, um, at the college level. Um, you know, and, and even even then, that, that tests my patience a bit. But, <laughs> but you know, it's. I just think that what you're saying is so profound. The power of storytelling, whether we're talking nonfiction or fiction. You know, I mean, I think it doesn't even matter. Let's take Hamilton for example. Um, you know, God, it was so brilliantly done. If we look at Hamilton and putting black people and people of color in the roles of like Washington, George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, for example, and all of their family members. And, um, you know, it is just 
it worked. And and let me tell you, the the fact that they did that in an odd way for the first time made me look at Amer- American history in a, in from the standpoint of even though my ancestors you know may not have been a part of that part of the story, I can relate. Now I get it. Now I get why that fight for independence was so important. Now I care why that <laughs> fight for independence was so important because all I cared about was the history of black people. But for some reason, just by putting black people in those roles and humanizing those roles, the race didn't even matter anymore. Now it became a story of humanity. It became a story of of victory that I was like that that was brilliant. Um we got to go to break but you know I want to hear your perspective on Hamilton. <laughs> um, so, so please stay with us. We'll be right back on the live exchange. All right, welcome back to the live exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela. Did we lose Ryan? Ryan? Oh, there he is. Okay. <laughs> All right. So um, we are talking about modern day black history makers and Ryan saying just by the sheer nature of the work that he's doing in film. Um, is such an important um, element of, of just highlighting Black culture and being another face in the room, another perspective in the room, another perspective behind the camera. Um, and, and so it's so important. And, and right before the break, we were talking about Hamilton. Um, I was talking about Hamilton. I'm a big fan. And I, I'm just amazed by how simply putting Black characters um, in the place or in the roles of traditionally white historical figures um, made such a difference for me. And I'm not exactly sure why. I don't know that I can really pinpoint why that was so important to me and why that made such a difference, why it made me suddenly care, which probably sounds horrible, about that element of our history. Um, I would love to hear your perspective, Ryan. Well, uh, when we look at a story like Hamilton, Someone else has written it in a way that makes it digestible. But that's because it's still taking the familiar story that we're all aware of and just putting someone in there. We have amazing stories. When we think of our women, for example, they're all super women. The ability to not have a husband around and you're raising one, two, several kids all by yourself. Perhaps you have community help, but most times you don't. And hopefully those kids come out to be successful. That's a super damn woman. That same narrative being told by a white person, you're like, oh, yeah, it's more sympathetic. But our stories are equally as sympathetic. When we sit sit in those boardrooms, we are very committed because we have the lived experience our experiences of the things we talk about and also the challenge to bear because we have been beaten and downtrodden and been rejected so many times that by the time we get there, we are completely scarred, bruised, and torn apart. And so when we talk about the story of Hamilton, it's the same struggle that the Black man has had, but at a different level because he's not of the dominant race. If you were in a community where you were of dominant race, then those stories will be celebrated because we will see those heroes. And so now we continue to build those heroes. When we look at Janelle Monáe's story, for example, you know, 
without giving it away, that was a lateral story that could have that you wondered in what century was that flashback? What? And then you realize, oh wow, damn, our narrative is happening right now, and we gotta write our celebration stories for the actors that are in those narratives and see each other when we're in the march and the rallies. We got to see them as rallies, not protests. We got to change the language in how we define ourselves so that we can see the heroes that is amongst us. Yes. And, you know, the the being able to take the reins on the creation of films, the implementation of films gives us that power, that writing power to rewrite those narratives, to choose to call something a rally um, as opposed to a protest or a riot, you know, some of the other language that's been used, um, you know, that, that paints a negative picture on, on what it is that we're trying to do. We've got two narratives going on in, in society at one time. You mentioned there are those who, um, you know, when the election happened uh, or when the, uh, let's see, uh, the, the inauguration happened on January 20th, you have one half of the country that was celebrating. This is a joyful day. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then you have another half of the country that's in mourning. And it's like, wait, are we in the same place? What? <laughs> Why is the experience so completely different? And, um, and I think that's why our perspective is so important because um, if left in silence, we would have the, the mourning population, the mourning group, um, be the ones that tell the story and write the history for us. And woo, would that be a story that they would tell? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why the stories that I'm part of, uh, Essence, Essence is about an old man and his conversation with a young boy, uh, a young boy who is being bullied. And the old man brings him in, treats him for his wounds and tells him, uh, to understand the meaning of his name uh, because that's the essence of who he, he is. The, the parents took the time to name him a certain name, giving him a certain power, and with that power, he should be able to stand up against the bulliers and speak to them. And my second film, uh, Henry, it's, it's a piece that I delve in uh, exploring the, the theme of of, of technology and how it impacts our lives. And I wrote it with my kids because I wanted to empower them uh, at six years old to be able to tell their own stories. And it was an experience where I watched them interact with Siri and Google. And I said, let's tell this story about your first interactions, but make it into a sci-fi account. And so my kids are now producers, uh, actors, and writers at eight years old. And they're having their first world premiere of their films. And so I'm helping to, to steer them into writing and, and organizing their, their narrative. So as they grow, they understand what's important about them and that they can be celebrated at any level and any time in their lives. And our film will be premiering I, I, at the premiere. Our film will be premiering on the Toronto Black Film Festival at torontoblackfilm.com. You can watch it in the U.S. And the price will be much discounted for you because the exchange rate is different. 
I absolutely love it. So it's a virtual festival? Is that, what to, is that how they're doing it? It is online. We are in complete lockdown here in Toronto. So all of our screenings will be online from February 10th to February 21st. There's going to be 154 films in this ninth edition of the Toronto Black Film Festival. And I think this is their first year going online. And they're really excited about all the films. Uh, last couple of years, like, for example, Hair, Sto Hair Story or the Hair um, that just won an Academy Award, it, it premiered, it not premiered, but it also played at the Toronto Black Film Festival. And there's some really great films, great gems. And there are also going to be some stories that you're probably never going to see again. And here's an opportunity to celebrate Black storytellers, Black writers, and Black stories. Wow. I, 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 that, you know what? We have, uh, you know, from as a society, and I'm, I'm including Canadian society, maybe this is a global society, have uh, just done a really interesting, fabulous job of figuring out how to shift and pivot to the virtual world. You know, we need to do it. Let's do it. And I think that in many ways, a lot of this is never going to go back to the way it was. Uh, <laughs> I think we have found a new way of living that, you know, might just, you know, continue on. But what this also does, it, and it speaks to you, you know, giving your children this platform, which, by the way, congratulations on giving them that platform and that voice that is priceless, um, a priceless gift from their father uh, that will, you know, continue to give throughout history. But what... Um, what that does for us, though, is it is in what we talked about earlier, is that that creates access. We can create our own platforms. Everybody's online now. Um, we've got a lot of different ways to tell our stories. Um, and it is time to capitalize on that. There is power. Look, we are binging on series nowadays. I don't know how you feel about series versus films. I'm kind of like, if the series is short, I'll watch it. You know, Bridgerton was eight episodes. Like, OK, I can do that. 20 episodes, uh, just give me a film. Let me just sit and watch a film. <laughs> but that power of storytelling story is so important. Go ahead. Well, we're, even, we're even looking at expanding Henry into a serialized uh, piece uh, because there's so much story to the, this technology evolution. Uh, I've already orchestrated a, a four-season arc with the stories. And so... I'm looking at pitching it out there and, and getting people to uh, buy into it so that we can make it and bring it uh, for audiences. Because again, we've seen uh, successful stories like, uh, what's his name on, on Netflix, Black. Uh, you know the one I'm talking about, Black, Black Lightning. It's doing very well. And so we need more sci-fi stories. We can tell those sci-fi stories and we have sci-fi people that are creating stuff in the real world. So why not tell the stories as well as fans? I love it. Uh, we're going to go to a break. I have to throw in the fact that I have been working on writing a sci-fi script. It's actually more fantasy um, that I'm very excited about. And um, I'm an amateur when it comes to that. But I have a whole trilogy in my head. So um yeah, we'll see what happens with that. When we come back, I want to hear more about how people can get in touch with you and with what you're doing. Um, so stay with us, everybody, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Live Exchange. I'm Dr. Pamela. And um, just to close out, um, I, we, we were talking about modern-day Black history makers, and I love the voice that, that Ryan Singh has here and that he is 
giving to other people. Um, and so, Brian, if you could just let us know how people can follow what you're doing, um, get involved if, if there's an opportunity to do that, and, and how we can watch what your your films. Again, I am completely accessible. I am twinpapa321 on Instagram. Uh, RyanSingEnterprises.com is my website. Uh, I'm Ryan Sing Media on Twitter and Ryan Sing Enterprises on Facebook. Uh, you can also write to me, RyanSingEnterprises at gmail.com. And uh, again, I'd like to shout out to my actors, uh, Andrea Grant, uh, Eva, Sebast- Eva Singh and Sebastian Singh, uh, and my director, Katizina Kachani, uh, and all of my team that worked on the project. Uh, again, everyone who has worked on it, whether they were paid or not, invested in the project. And without that investment, we would not have had a project that is now going to be screened. And so you can find the film at the Toronto Black Film Festival, torontoblackfilm.com. And uh, be sure to subscribe to it and uh, our program is the narrative shorts program Ooh, narrative shorts i love the sound of that that sounds like it's right down my alley <laughs> i love it i love it so much. Um, there are about 10 to 12 films in the program two of them uh, i'm part of but uh there's some really exciting films there and uh, it'll be a good uh, good endorsement yeah, that I teach research, and I'm actually teaching narrative research right now, teaching them how to tell a story, how to gather a story um, through research. So that there are parallels everywhere, parallels everywhere. <laughs> uh, so I, I appreciate the work you're doing. Is there any final words that you want to share with the audience? Um, just in closing. I really want to commend you on, on, the, on the program as well. It, I've been listening to all the commercials. It's nice to see a program that is well endorsed. And, uh, and also, if there's anything that I can do for you or we can work and collaborate together, please do let me know. I'm, again, always available and make myself available to, to help out because I don't see ourselves as being competitive. I see ourselves as being... Uh, complementary to each other because we have a, a, a large and strong and important journey to go on and we can't do it alone we have to do it together uh that was such a great message because i am on such on such things but i agree we're not in competition um we are all on this journey together so i i thank you so much um ryan and i i actually look forward to staying connected uh with with the different work that you're doing um and i want to thank all of you for joining us today on the live exchange where every week we exchange uh dialogue on humanity intellect and change and just remember that when we dialogue better, we do better. So join us um, next week. We're going to continue the conversation. We are going to be honoring. Um, we honor. Our, we honor Black History all through the year, but we're definitely going to be doing it this month as well. Uh, so thank you so much, and have an amazing week.